0: This is the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 4.
1: It's just good for your all-around mood. I'm Laura Cox. I'm the flutist of Talk.
0: And I'm Charlotte Mundy, vocalist of Talk. And we're here today with Anne Clear.
2: Hi. (laughs)
1: This is the first season of the TAC Editions podcast, and we're focusing on highlighting the pieces and composers from our album Ur, which is the inaugural release on our new TAC Editions label. Today, we're speaking with Anne about her
0: piece, Unable to Create an Off-Screen World C*. Anne is a composer whose work explores the static and sculptural nature of sound, probing the extremities of timbre, texture, color, and form. She creates highly psychological and corporeal sonic spaces that encourage a listener to contemplate the complexity of the lives we exist within, exploring poetries of communication, transformation and perception.
1: So, Anne, I'm wondering about unable to create an off screen world, see where was the idea for the piece originating? What's the is there a story behind it?
3: Well, I I have to be honest, it wasn't an instrumentation that I was really so drawn to. It was initially, I should say, initially. It was part of my first and second year work as a PhD student. It was a kind of instrumentation that composers in my year had to write for and kind of You know, write a draft of a piece, and my teachers and um, colleagues would uh, listen to it, and I'd keep working on it over, I think, the first two years of my PhD. So it very much is part of uh, that time in my life and those early years of studying at at Harvard with Hans and Haya and uh, the classmates I had there. So I mentioned the instrumentation because I I suppose in some ways it's part of this classical kind of pure type ensemble that I generally find it very hard to write for um, the flute and the clarinet and then some strings and a piano or percussion. Yeah, it was it was a bit of um, a challenge for me to think what I could do with that. So I think I was influenced by this very short electronic piece that I wrote, it's just a minute and a half long. Um, I had just written that, I think, in the months previous to working on on the quintet. And that's A, right? Um, yeah, well that became A. It didn't, I don't know what really started as <laughs> A. It's about a minute and a half long and it's purely electronic, like pre-recorded. And I guess I was thinking about that and the kind of energy of that piece and the these motions that it finds itself moving in. And I thought I'd really love to do that with acoustic instruments somehow. So I, I thought as a way of kind of getting into a possible piece for, for a quintet of flute, clarinet, percussion, violin and cello that I would kind of study that a little bit and transcribe parts of it and from there develop i guess that that kind of a material into a bigger piece so that started with first just a a duo piece which is now b for piccolo and percussion and so that's one layer and then in c a kind of second layer of carnage violin and cello join and that became unable to create an off-screen world C. So I guess that's the background to it. It was kind of like, I suppose it's something I often do. Uh, You know, I kind of have to find a kind of sound world that interests me and then find a way for a certain instrumentation to kind of evoke that
1: acoustically. It sounds like there is this kind of really protracted process of living in that sound world, which it seems like you have from other works in your oeuvre that kind of spiral into these larger series. So how does that work for you? Do you find yourself really inhabiting these worlds or...? What is the process like when you're in these really long processes?
3: Well, I guess the, you know, source material that I work from, I do like to have something like that, just even a really short palette of sound that that then I kind of extend ideas out from. Once I've found that kind of palette of sound, narratives start to, to grow from it as well. So it kind of takes life in that way. I don't know, just certain material, I think, suggests itself as needing to be extended or or not, really. How do you find a palette of sound? um, In Unable to Create an Off-Screen World, it was from the thunder tube, which is used in the piece. A friend just gave me one of these, and he was like, this is exactly like what your music sounds, just this, like, little instrument.
1: (laughs) A compliment, right? All those (laughs) orchestras
3: and ensembles and whatever else. It just all sounds like this thunder shoe. Wow. Oh my God.
1: So, like that that felt like a nice thing to say or
3: (laughs) I mean I in some ways he has a point like it's such a rich sound the thunder tube yeah and I am interested in these unpitched but very dense timbres. and with the thunder tube you have this kind of you know wind this low I suppose at the time I was writing a lot of very low music as well like unable to create an off-screen world is probably unique in that it has a kind of higher register than most of my music but I think at the time he had just heard one piece that was for um, nine instruments and they're all very low and that piece does sound a lot like a thunder tube even though there's like nine instruments.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We were laughing partially because it's one of Ellery, our percussionist's least favorite instruments, the thunder tube but there must be a reason why people sell them in toy stores. It is a really compelling sound to anyone. Like, it's kind of visceral.
3: Well, I guess it's also just they're so small, but they make this huge sound. It's kind of, I don't know, it's surprising, I guess, the the richness of the sound quality that it can um, achieve. But I suppose it was with the, the undertube that I uh, made Unable to Create an Off-Screen World A, Uh, So I just recorded samples from it, uh, me just improvising on it, and then kind of arranged it into a a little piece, then just editing samples of it and and layering them and, and so on. But yeah, I suppose it's the found object of the piece, I suppose. Even the idea of the instrument did follow into the second piece B and the third piece C, because B, the duo for Piccolo and mainly for Timp is meant to be or actually no sorry it's Piccolo and mainly for Thunder Tube and a little bit of Timp mm-hmm. but that was meant to be this idea that the duo were like the spring of the Thunder Tube and then in C when the trio come in of clarinet, violin, and cello. They're meant to be like the tube, in a way. Oh,
1: (laughs) that's so cool. I never knew that. Would you imagine somebody, for an audience experience, would you imagine that you'd want people to listen to A and then B and then C all in a row or as a series? Or how do you think about the way one would experience all three of them?
3: I don't know. You know, I don't think I've ever heard the three of them myself. I don't know if they've ever been performed, all three. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've always said that I, I think it could be interesting to hear them in different orders as well. I suppose I label them A, the electronic piece, just because the material that's used in the other pieces is really, um, it derives from there. So it, there's kind of an order in that if they were to be played as A, B, C. But I've also imagined that it could be played as, I don't know, B. And then you hear some of A and then you hear C and then you hear A again. or You know, there could be different ways of repeating it and uh, reordering it because it's kind of meant to be the same material, but just you hear it kind of magnified in different ways in each
1: piece. Well, I think we're kind of all getting some like... Ooh, cool idea, brainwaves right yeah, now. Yeah, we should totally do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although we should tell you that Ellery's other least favorite instrument from Thunder Tube is in fact timpani. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but for you i'm sure he would be happy he's <laughs> he's he loves those instruments and
1: yeah yeah it's different if it's
3: your timpani you know it might it might change his relationship to it or maybe it might make it worse i don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay so you said you wrote this piece in your first and second year at Harvard. Yeah. And the um, description that you have on your website of this piece, or the the little program note fragment, talks about the juxtaposition of wrongness, incompatibility, and inability with energy, confidence, and hope. And as a Canadian, those are qualities that sound very American to me, like especially (laughs) that combination of qualities. And I'm curious if you think that had any Am I just like projecting or um, (laughs) do you think that being in this new environment sort of shaped how you thought about the piece?
3: I don't know. Um, I think about why I described it as wrongness. I think it has a lot to do with, you know, what I kind of want to capture in music, even, you know, down to like aesthetics. I think my idea of what, is compelling and and even like what's beautiful it's probably very different to most people's idea of what would be beautiful or compelling and sometimes like especially this piece it's quite mechanical and there's something about the mechanical arrangement of something that may not be working perfectly but kind of has its own logic that I, I think can be Kind of so absorbing and unusual to to see so i suppose it it was kind of at the time if i think back it, i was really into writing this very kind of mechanical music but it was a metaphor of like a machine that wasn't working in maybe what most people would term uh, the way it should but there was a kind of beauty in its its wrongness as well mm. um I suppose it's almost like a metaphor for, for different ways of um using language or of different ways of behaving and a kind of expansion of what musical language could evoke, so I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at. I don't know who is entirely focused on being in the u s for the first time I think mm-hmm. I think it probably goes back a bit further than that but I suppose it's trying to maybe draw attention to how you know different people speak and act and live their lives in a different way and there can be this universal idea of what music is and how it should sound and, and what it should communicate so I don't know if wrongness is even the right was the right word to describe it maybe it should be like of difference maybe
2: Mm -hmm.
3: and then I suppose the energy and confidence and hope again it goes back to this machine that's that's living its own life and unfolding in its own way and in my mind it had a lot of confidence about that about what it was and what it was trying to do so I think I was trying to get at that maybe thinking back.
1: Are these still ideas that you're interested in with regards to musical language has what you're kind of digging at changed a lot since then I don't know
3: if it has I mean I'm always interested in peculiar ideas from nature like not or if not even from nature but from everyday life Mm. Um, I would be quite inspired by just everyday things but I mean to some people they're not so noticeable but to, to me they would be like oh that's Really unusual that that happened, and you know it has this kind of shape and this kind of color. Whether it's something from nature or something that a person has said or done, I think that always continues
1: to interest me and feed into the music I write. Are there any Uh, things like that that happened recently that are on the tip of your brain?
3: I don't know. Um, It's really hard for me to pinpoint exactly how I a moment like that is then to kind of pinpoint it in the music too. I suppose it's constantly like what I was going to say about the quintet, or even in in more recent years, the kind of direction that work has taken. I suppose the language is always changing, even though it might be something similar that inspires a piece, the way to communicate it changes over the years, I I would hope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I moved through maybe two ways of thinking about pieces. Like some of them are quite mechanical, like unable to create an off-screen world and then others have a dreamier kind of quality time is much more kind of spatial there and and very hard to grasp a sense of I suppose I'm I'm always trying to have the listener get lost in a piece even though again that's probably not something that a lot of listeners want to do (laughs) you know they want to know where they are they want to know they want to hear the pulse and Mm. They want things to be graspable, but, you know, if it's dreamlike, it should be something a little bit more out of your grasp in a way. So I suppose pieces tend to move between those two ways of being, I guess. So I guess there are changes, to go back to your question in (laughs) in that, but... um, yeah, I guess it's about language and that developing in a way that communicates the ideas.
1: This is so fascinating. I feel so privileged to be able to have this conversation. Yeah, about totally. <laughs> Having played some other of your pieces too, and then trying to find, like, huh, these sound worlds, you can see where they would be friends, you know, but they're so different, or like the mode of communication that I would have as a performer to the audience really changes.
0: Yeah, I thought when you were talking, I was thinking of the piece that you wrote for Ensemble Nickel, that I saw, I saw them play it last summer at Darmstadt. And the, the saxophone part sounded so otherworldly and dreamy, but then the, other, the rest of the ensemble is playing this seemingly fairly mechanical sort of.
3: Yeah, yeah, I suppose there are pieces where maybe they meet as well, the, the kind of mechanical and the more um, dreamlike material Yeah, it's true. That would be an example of a piece where they meet. And I suppose there's others, too. And maybe there's other modes, too. I would hope even more might develop
1: in in years, that it's not just those two. (laughs) Do you have any, I'm going to sit down and compose now, like... Rituals? Do you have little things you do to get you into the composing brain space? You always light a candle and look out the south-facing window and say nice things to yourself. Or? I wish um,
3: I do find it harder and harder to you know when even when it's like okay now is composing time. It takes so long for me to get into it, and I have kind of have always been like that. It, I think for a lot of people. Their first few hours or hour of composing is the most important one, but generally for me it's always been that I'll work for you know if I have a day where I get to compose, which is pretty unusual now, but <laughs> if I had even a few hours, it's only like in the last half hour of it that I'm finally like know what I'm trying to do and <laughs> I'm like more to as the longer I spend, the more into it I kind of am as I'm Yeah, shorter on time now. I I guess I can't really do that anymore. So what I have been doing in the last maybe year or so is I've just been trying to read, like read words a little bit first, like just some kind of book that I'm reading on on sound and ideas about sound. I kind of make sure that like my phone is off, the internet is as far away as possible. I try to just slow down by reading a little bit even if it's just a few pages it just kind of brings my tempo down and I'm a little bit more focused when I start to compose then so I've been doing that a bit otherwise I I have probably haven't lived anywhere long enough recently to have any other nicer rituals
1: (laughs) because I just constantly have different things everywhere that I am I'm inspired by that though I like the idea of slowing your tempo down
0: yeah Yeah. and I love your the way you use words, like I was reading a couple interviews with you, or even your um, program notes, It's they're always very beautifully written, I think. It's obvious that you care a lot about words.
2: Yeah,
3: well, I I vary a lot on how much time I spend with program notes. Sometimes they're so important to me, and other times I just really... They're such a chore. Um, Like recently, I haven't written very detailed program notes. Years ago, I would have written pages and pages. And I think it was just, I'm eager to kind of help an audience get into the piece in any way I can. And I, I used to feel like program notes were a good way to do that. But also, you can never depend on people reading them. I mean, I'm generally so late getting to everything that (laughs) if I just get to the the first piece on time, having time to read the program notes is something I rarely get to do. Maybe I do it after the concert.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do that a lot. I take the program and I like, put it down or in my bag and forget and then pull it out three days later when I'm cleaning out my purse and I'm like oh my gosh I'm really excited now I finally can read about this concert.
2: Yeah
1: yeah
3: so it's not even though you can put a lot of effort into it and you imagine that every listener will read it before they hear the piece you can't really depend on that either. Right. Yeah, so I vary with how much it just feels like sometimes there is a kind of picture that I want to paint for the listener in words before they hear it. And other times it doesn't feel so necessary. And I wouldn't say it's because, you know, one piece is able to communicate by itself and the other isn't. I don't know. Maybe sometimes it's just harder to to paint that picture and it's better to just let the music do it for you.
0: When did you start composing? How did you get into music in general?
3: I guess in in university, I took a composition class really by accident. I didn't pick it. Uh, I think it was in my second year of undergrad and I had picked other classes and I went back to university in, I think, September, I guess. And I had spent some of the summer in San Francisco and came back from San Francisco and was just so exhausted and just really not myself. (laughs) And I kind of was back in university for about a week and I felt really ill. And it turned out I had a viral pneumonia. Oh, God. And so I missed, I think, maybe like the next three, even three or four weeks of classes and when I went back, my uh, head of department said that I could either take the year out and uh, come back the next year and take the classes I wanted. Or, <laughs> yeah.
1: or you could oh, take oh, composition.
3: Exactly. I could take the classes that hadn't handed in much money
1: assignments. <laughs> oh my God. That's so so it was kind of like a divine was composition. <laughs> wow. Yes. So uncanny. One of the. The classes I took at
3: that time was called Making and Breaking Instruments. Oh my gosh. So that was like the first kind of introduction to composition that I had. That sounds like a great class. That's really cool. Reinventing different instruments, like we'd spend a week on winds and brass and percussion and, and look at how someone had reinvented the instrument. So, I didn't even really have an introduction to like, I don't know what you'd imagine as an outsider a composition class would be like classically. I thought I was going to have to be doing like counterpoint and functional harmony. And the first piece that I heard was Sperio Sequenza for voice. It's just like, what? <laughs> like, what is this? This is like incredible. I just never knew that music could be that my idea of what music was was so square and so so much of a tonal world basically i thought music was tonality so this class was incredible and i was like just so happy and encouraged to discover it it was amazing so i just i kept composing from there really from that class and just a pure accident that it happened at all That's so amazing. Yeah, I mean, if I hadn't gotten pneumonia, I don't know what,
1: I can't imagine I would have taken a (laughs) composition. I know your life, if you hadn't had pneumonia, would be so different, right? It's so crazy. (laughs) It's really cool. What were you studying before you went into this year? Did you have plans or do you harbor any secret fantasies about what you would be if you weren't composing? I really wanted to
3: do something in music. But as you know it's just so hard to know what that is outside of maybe teaching you know there's so few paths that are well trodden that you can you know at the age of 18 or so on you can point and say that's it yeah totally so I definitely wanted to do something creative, but yeah, I don't know what that would have been if it wasn't composing. I do love curating and I, I love going to like galleries and seeing collections of things and, and how different works connect to each other. And I would love to, I'd say I would have enjoyed that too, but um I'd imagine it would be something creative, but in in the arts world, I suppose.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. You weren't going to be like an aerospace technician? No, I'm I'm not (laughs)
3: natural enough for anything like that. It was some experimental airspace, maybe.
0: (laughs) Do you have any favourite galleries that you especially like to go to or like any memories of a a show that really particularly inspired you?
2: I
3: actually, I love that kind of strip of galleries in Chelsea. You know, you just, they're kind of small. I I don't know what street they're on. You can just kind of pop in and out and they have just a few kind of small shows in each one. I love going there anytime I'm in New York. Like there's just always interesting pieces there. Like I saw an exhibition by Andreas Gefeller. I think he's Mm -hmm. German, a photographer there once. I really like his work a lot. That was pretty memorable. I think it was around my first year in the US. Even though I was in Boston, to be able to like pop down to New York in a few hours and see these amazing galleries was just, I guess, I, yeah, something I was couldn't believe I had access to finally.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were there the other day. It's nice, like you get, you have the opportunity to be so surprised, but there's not so many things that you can really interact with everything and then kind of like exit a space and enter a new one. It's really special.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I feel like it
0: often inspires me to think about sound or music differently when I see when I see different people doing different things in visual art or in some other artistic field. It gives me a new perspective on my own work.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You just see, I guess, even especially I find with sculpture sometimes to come across pieces, you see them like visually and and materially. It's so helpful to see that. And it also just makes you feel like, I don't know, if there's people in other disciplines trying to create the same kind of language and exploring the same kinds of materials, then... There is something to what you're doing in the air. Like it's not just this completely crazy experiment that you have going yourself. Like if there's someone else doing it in New York or London or Ethiopia, then there has to be something to it as well somewhere, something that that's in the world, I think.
1: On this trail of things that interest you, do you have a favorite book or is there a book that you're really into that you read recently that slowed your tempo or maybe didn't?
3: There's a book I'm reading at the moment, um, it's actually right in front of me, it's a Hyper Object by oh Timothy God. Morton, do you know this? Yeah, I've never heard of it. It's been out for a while, I've actually never gotten to read anything by him before, but yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Uh, I mean, again, it's kind of like the way I'm often thinking about things, but don't really have a language for so... There really is a language for these ideas of the way the world is changing and all these kind of hybrid objects that are starting to exist and how they exist and so on. So I, I just love finding texts like that that can verbalize what I'm I'm thinking but can't quite say in words myself.
1: He does it too in this way that seems very poetic and gives you a permission to go forth and just dream about things however you want.
3: Yeah, exactly. I also read Vibrant Matter. It's by Jane Bennett. Right. Also an amazing book, like just something that seems so difficult to speak about, this kind of activity of, of non-human life, I also just felt like even the way I think about sound material and how it's kind of combined and fusing different kinds of sounds, it's so helpful to, to have a kind of language to think about that with as well, rather than it all just being very sonic or almost like shapes and lines and so on. There's some like really amazing philosophers now, I guess. I'm trying every, every day to read something like that, that keeps me thinking and kind of gets me in the zone of composing. But then I also read uh, a lot of fiction as well. Uh, w- well, whenever I can. What kind of fiction? The last thing I've read was My Brilliant Friend. So Elena Ferrante's oh uh-huh. uh, four books
1: yeah did you you did all four of them
3: yeah I'm very late coming to it I know everyone has read them at this stage but I thought they were just amazing like just so gripping so evocative I did see the I guess the tv
1: oh I haven't seen that is it did you like it
3: Yeah. And that just drew me into them. I was like, I had to read the other books and see what happened. (laughs) I couldn't wait for another year to just see what happened. I wish I could read more, but there just isn't really much time. Sounds like you read a lot. I watch too much TV. I really do. (laughs) It's just also so much good TV. It's true. It's incredible at the moment.
0: Well, we've kept you talking for a while now. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about what you're working on right now and then we'll do some fun questions. Yeah, do you have anything coming up that you're super
3: psyched about? There's two projects that are kind of bigger projects that I've been trying to get to in the last few years. I'm going to take a bit of time out from writing concert music and and focus on, on them instead. So they're a little bit overly ambitious, but I think it's <laughs> good. They could take me to interesting places even if, if they never find completion in themselves as projects. But uh one is an idea to turn a chamber opera that I wrote a few years ago into a, a kind of short film or possibly maybe like a live video piece with multiple screens and then also maybe like a VR version as well. Ooh it would exist in three different ways or there'd be like three different ways to see the story for me that involves very basic like learning to use a camera and learning about film and and direction and everything but in some ways I love like earlier what I was saying I love recording like found sound and editing it and sometimes I think well if I could do with a camera you know what I do with a microphone that could be really interesting or at least to like approach it that way so I'm planning on devoting a bit of time to that just taking a bit of time to experiment really and play with it rather than doing any kind of very formal training yet and then I guess there are people that I could collaborate with on that because I don't see it as me being able to direct the whole thing or film the whole thing or anything like that. But I would like to understand a bit more about all those skills before I collaborate with anyone either, just so I have a sense of, of how it works and what's possible.
0: You started composing with um, like learning how to take apart instruments, so maybe you should also <laughs> start
1: your film work with just how to do it completely wrong. Yeah, making and breaking cameras. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I cook I think it would be fun even if it's something that I I think okay this isn't for me it always when you go back to writing music again I think these experiences really help you expand your way of thinking somehow as well like it's never lost time or wasted time
2: I think.
1: Yeah, and finding ways that you are able to look for or actually like find them. A- a mode of looking at things or expressing things outside of your main craft always feels so nutritive. It'll be enriching no matter what comes of it.
3: Yeah. And then the other project is to in connection with this sculpture park and an outdoor sculpture park near to where I'm from. It's owned by Bord which is the main kind of company for like solid fuel distribution in Ireland. Where I'm from is kind of the middle of Ireland and it's there's a lot of fogland here. One of the main industries, I guess, has been cultivating, like, peat and turf and, and so on. And that industry is now, almost all the plants are closing here. So the company is trying to find a way to, to um, I suppose, not let those warehouses and, and the land itself kind of just
1: be left unused. So they're making sculpture parks?
3: They are. So they're giving all their old machinery to artists to recycle into sculptures. Wow, that's so neat. So it is interesting. I mean, it's also, I suppose they're moving to like renewable energy too. So they want this machinery to kind of reflect the past because it was quite unique to the land and of like a source of pride in the area you know that Mm. the midlands had all this machinery that nowhere else in the country had and it's a way to keep it alive but also hopefully for it to have a kind of forward-looking focus to even like mark that it did i mean solid fuel has done so much damage to the environment as well so there's just so many factors because it the place gave provided employment for so long but it it also damaged the world that we're now living in um so they're looking for pieces I guess that reflect all these factors in a way so I guess I'm hoping to make pieces that are activated by the weather and then also maybe combined with smaller sculptural kind of pieces that maybe ensembles or groups kind of use in performance so maybe there's a site specific kind of pieces for it and then also that pieces themselves sound even when there aren't people there Mm. Um, so there's just different projects like that that I'd really love to I don't know write for something that's outdoor and just completely on this wild, wild kind of open plain it would be such a different way for me to think about like sound and performance. Yeah, those are my two pet projects, I guess. It's hard to see where the end point might be with them, but that's kind of <laughs> exciting, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, they sound super exciting. I'm <laughs> yeah, like... I'm
1: feeling inspired. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'm gonna play Would You Rather. Okay. You've played this game
3: before?
1: I don't think so, no. Oh my gosh, inaugural Would You Rather. Okay, so we'll give you a proposition with two possibilities and you have to pick one.
0: Okay. And maybe tell us why. Can I? Oh, go for it. I just thought of one from our talk. Go for it. Would you rather write music for a defunct tar sands field or a defunct landfill?
3: Ooh, what What is the first one? A
0: tar? Tar sands. It's like where people are so desperate for oil now that they're like finding it in these, it's like sort of spread out over a really large area and they have to do a really destructive thing to the environment to like extract the tar from dirt
1: and sand. It's a, like a big Canadi- it's Canadian It's a huge issue. thing in Canada, uh, Yeah. yeah.
3: Oh, I oh gosh, that's hard. I don't know. I think I might go for the the land refill just because, oh, I know. I don't know what I would do, but, like, there would be so much stuff there. (laughs) (sighs) Or there'd be, like, a a trace of so much stuff. Whereas, I don't know, the other material could be so hard to work
1: with. I don't know.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah, I think that would be, at least in this moment, that's what I'd go for. (laughs) Great. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: Okay. Here's another one. Would you rather spend a week in the year 1700 or a week in the year 2,300? Oh, my God. Totally 2,300. (laughs) No hesitation. hesitation. Why is that? 1,700 just doesn't appeal to you?
3: No. (laughs) Who would want to be alive in that time? It
1: was awful. But how do you know that the future isn't going to be equally awful? I mean, it might be, but then at least you... would But I guess I don't know what it is. You know, mm. I mean, we speculate,
3: but at least there's a curiosity. Whereas, you know, the 17th century, oh, I don't know. My history books don't tell me that it was a very hopeful time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, totally fair.
0: Fair enough. Okay, would you rather never hear a bagpipe again? <laughs> Or never hear the sound of a train again.
3: Oh, I really like both. Um, yeah, me too. Does it mean if I never could never hear the sound of a train, I'd also never be able to take a train?
0: <laughs> no, you can still take a train. You just magically would not be able to hear it. That would be you, so disorienting. You also right? could never hear like a far off sound of a train, like whistle. You know, but
1: you also wouldn't necessarily hear bagpipes every time you took a train. Like they don't just switch. <laughs>
0: Oh,
3: no. (laughs) I think given that I see trains and take trains a lot more than I encounter bagpipes, I probably pick the train.
1: (laughs) Goodbye, bagpipes. You were nice. You served your purpose. (laughs) Okay, would you rather journey to the moons of Jupiter or to the center, like the core of the Earth? Oh, I think the Jupiter. Yeah. yeah, me too. Charlotte?
0: Yeah, I think the moons of Jupiter. I mean, it's, a pretty,
1: it's a pretty easy question.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather have a magic unlimited library of books that like contains any book you want at any time, and also it's just a nice place to sit and read and write and stuff, or a magic private movie theater that plays whatever film or TV show you want, whenever you want?
3: Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> I think I picked the books, though, just because, again, it would be quiet. And, yeah, thinking of the space, I picked the books. Books.
1: Nice. Yeah. Magic library it is coming your way. Awesome. No bagpipes included. <laughs> thank you so much for making the time to talk to us.
0: Yeah, thank you, Anne. <laughs> we forgot to say that you're joining us from Dublin, right? Oh, well,
3: from
1: Offaly actually.
3: Ah. From.
0: from Offaly. Cool. Thanks for joining us across the ocean. Yeah.
3: The recording just sounds so amazing. Aww. The CD, all the pieces. They, they're just, they're super. The playing and, and the sound quality and everything. It's an amazing CD.
1: Thank you. Thanks. That's really meaningful to hear. We're really proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Thank you again.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. 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 This has been the Talk Editions
0: Podcast, Episode 4 with Anne Clear. For links to Anne's music and to other things we talked about in this episode, check out our show notes. Anne's piece, Unable to Create an Off Screen World, C, is featured on Talk's recent album, Ur, which you can purchase at talkensemble.bandcamp.com. Stick around to listen to the piece in its entirety at the end of this episode. If you're enjoying the Talk Edition's podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. For extra bonus points, tell your friends. Our next episode will feature an interview with composer Ashkan Bazavi. This episode was recorded at Tiny Panther Recording with help from Charles Muller. It was produced by Marina Kifferstein and Charlotte Mundy and edited by Charlotte Mundy. That's me. For more information about Talk, go to talkensemble.com.